everyone. Thanks for joining our webcast. Today, we're pleased to present Where Cloud Infrastructure Meets Lean Startup, sponsored by Rackspace. I'm Melissa Tinatigan, executive producer of the Lean Startup Conference. First, can everyone hear me? Our speakers today are Wayne Walls and Eric Reese. Wayne is a cloud architect at Rackspace and an accomplished technical leader with over 10 years experience solving problems and developing solutions in startup, enterprise, and academic environments. Eric is the author of the book, The Lean Startup, and the co-host of the Lean Startup Conference. A few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before asking the question. The speakers will answer questions in the second half of the webcast. This is a 45-minute program, and the recording will be available a few days after this live webcast. Take it away, guys. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. So we're going to be talking about cloud infrastructure um, with, uh, <clears throat> that is going to help us support Lean Startup practices. So just getting right into it since we're a little bit behind. Um, Actually, watching the uh, State of the Union of the you know, lean practices, there was actually a uh, term you actually threw out there called uh, growth companies. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase the definition, but you mentioned that it was a, uh, a company that exists only to extract value, not only to extract value from past decisions, but looks for new sources of sustainable growth through innovation. Yep. Um, this was something that was, uh, it kind of struck me because with a lot of new age apps um, that you're seeing a lot of people develop, um, um, you know, I think about the Netflixes and the Google Now and the Xboxes of the world. Um, you know, those are tailoring um, experiences to a particular audience. Do you believe that that's the way going forward, or do you think there still is value? You know, where you have one product with multiple interfaces, or do you believe that this new tailored experience is kind of the way um, you should go, and you know, Link can help you extract value out of it? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I'm glad I'm glad you caught that at the conference. I, I feel like that's been a big part of uh, of my work the last few years is coming to the realization that, you know, when we're talking about what does the company of the future look like, what does a modern company look like, people want to talk, like people in the management space, people who are excited to talk about the future want to talk about about innovation, but honestly, the people who are in the trenches making decisions, the managers, the entrepreneurs who are actually working their butts off every day. They don't really care that much about innovation. They care about <laughs> growth. They care about scale. They care about impact. And so the question is, how do we build an organization where we don't just have one good idea and then, boof, you know, we go public and we become a bureaucratic mess and that's the end of it. How do we create something where we can seek out new sources of growth, as you said, uh, forever? And, and that gets right to the heart of your question because our assumption, there's something very intuitive about the idea that if you want scale, if you want to go big, you have to create something that appeals to everyone. You know, it's a universal platform that's used by all people. Uh, and, and as soon as a designer or, or customer says, well, you know, uh, by making it so general purpose, it doesn't really solve my specific problem that well. It's like it mm -hmm. solves a couple mm -hmm. problems for everybody instead of all the problems for me. Maybe I don't really want to adopt it. And we had a tendency to push back and say, no, 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 I don't care. That's the way you get big. And one of the really surprising things that I've learned, you know, in the course of working with, with people in the Lean Startup is that trying to go big by being broad never works. Because for every product, somebody has to be that first customer. Somebody has to say, I'm willing to try this, even though nobody else is. And, and people call that the early adopter, the early evangelist, you know, the kind of the whole crossing the chasm idea. So whatever you start with has to be tailored to some specific use case. And on my point of view, the more specific, the better. 
but without losing sight of that general purpose platform, that big vision that we want to have. I think that's kind of what makes entrepreneurship hard is trying to figure out how do I say focus on the small thing, but understand how am I going to get from this small MVP to the high scale, large impact thing that I want. And so you can do that by creating individual tailored experiences, as you said, that, that really are independent apps and then trying to uh, turn that into like a patchwork quilt. Or you can refactor into an increasingly general platform, kind of, you know, if you think about like what Facebook has done, starting with their, you know, poke app for college kids and eventually refactoring over and over again into a worldwide platform. I think either eventual path is okay, as long as you're willing to start with a specific experience for a specific customer. Hmm. Okay, so that's interesting because it seems like there's a there's a lot of talk just in the tech industry right now um, around the term specialist versus a generalist, yeah. um, and it kind of sounds like you know you're talking you know you you need to kind of find that that niche for you where you know you can yeah. specialize in, um, but you do see that there is a broader audience that you're still trying to you know really appeal to, um, and I think that so what are your thoughts around um, just I guess like so interfaces. So you know when you think about um, when you think about like web applications uh, versus native applications versus hybrid apps, um, you know what what strategies do you believe are are beneficial to someone kind of you know just now getting into the space and and kind of thinking about how they want to build their app and the audience that they want to really go after? Yeah, yeah, this is a really tough one, and. Uh, I think a lot of people assume that every app going forward has got to be written with three interfaces. You need HTML5, iOS, and Android, and you have to do them simultaneously. And then if we have a, you know, a Microsoft fan or something in the audience, you're like, four. You know, something, <laughs> and I don't know, maybe there's still yeah. some BlackBerry people that are like, five. Okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> N is large number of interfaces. And uh, I think that's a mistake. I think you don't want to target multiple platforms at the same time uh, because you basically have to have two choices. Either you build in a general purpose language that then has to translate. So there's all these UI toolkits and stuff that let you take, you know, like or you build that HTML5 container app or whatever. But all of those things produce imperfect experiences on all the platforms. So it's like, it's again, it's spreading the value thin across multiple segments, which I think is always a mistake. Or you actually do the work to create three really good native implementations on all three platforms, in which case now you've delayed your launch, you know, potentially 3x because you felt you had to get all three right. Uh, I just think that's a huge mistake. You can always add platforms. There's, it doesn't get harder over time. I think people really overestimate the, the value in being multi-platform from the beginning. So I strongly advocate uh, beginning on one platform. Now, how do you choose which platform to start on? That's an interesting question. Because you have to combine, first of all, the most important thing is that your early adopter customers are on that platform. Luckily, mm-hmm. with iOS, Android, and HTML5, there is very rare that you have a customer segment that's absent from one of the three. They might be, there might be more teenagers on iOS or more teenagers on Android. I really don't know. But there's going to be some on all three. So, so you're generally okay on that front. But like if you said, listen, our customers like, are all mobile. They don't use the web. You know, they don't have a desktop. Then I'd say, well, then let's start with a mobile platform. If you said our customers are like the last people on earth who don't have a mobile phone, then obviously okay, that's, that's rule number one. But the second rule, and I think this is the one that people really overlook, people generally pick, let me pick the right platform for business reasons. Now let me figure out how fast can I iterate on that platform. And I think that's backwards. The speed of iteration is a critical factor in choosing the platform in the first place and choosing your technical architecture on that platform. It's one of the many reasons, you know, we 
yeah, we're looking for opportunities for utility computing, you know, cloud on demand, SaaS. Like, I mean, all those factors allow us to have an architecture that supports faster iteration, even if it comes at the cost of performance, even if it comes at the cost of total addressable market. So I don't know if this is still true, but there was a time when people were were pretty much convinced that iOS, you could make more money on iOS. So, you mm-hmm. know, people spent more money on iOS, the app store was better, uh, you should start on iOS because you're going to make more money. And if you go right. back to kind of the core principles of Lean Startup, we believe that the unit of progress for entrepreneurship is validated learning. It is actually discovering what the right model is for the product, not making money. And people get confused. Wait a minute. I, shouldn't I go where the money is? Not necessarily. You've got to go where you can learn how to build that growth company. So if you can iterate faster on Android than on iOS, it might make sense to do your initial experimentation on Android, perfect the model, and then port to iOS. I mean, I'm not saying that's always the right thing to do. There might be situations sure. where you can iterate faster you know, on the web, but then the fidelity of the experience is not high enough for you to get a statistically valid sample. I mean, like, it's this experiment design. You really have to be thoughtful about it. But I think to me, it's about where are the customers and then how fast can we get the learning on that platform. Perfect. Okay. Okay. So that kind of covers a, a lot of the, the front end work. Um, so you mentioned platform, and that's a, a very important word, um, you know, especially um, here at Rackspaces. You know, we talk about the OpenStack platform. Um, so when you start looking at, um, and, and something that we've actually seen quite a bit, is a lot of companies um, or startups will actually, you know, kind of grow up in the public cloud space. And, you know, they'll kind of hit this hyperscale moment, and then there's an inflection point that you know they start to optimize and sometimes that means coming you know into a colo facility maybe going to a managed hosting maybe into their own data center even um, I feel like you know kind of the arguments that you're making around platform can also apply on the back end and you also have other open source technologies as well um, how do you think all these kind of tie together to make a you know make a full story yeah, it, the exact same logic as it, it applies on the back end as the front end. It's, it's about the speed of experimentation. And I think, you know, I think, I think founders are getting more educated about this, although in the enterprise, when we look at enterprise entrepreneurs, I feel like their uh, best practices there lag behind. Uh, but in, in mm-hmm. any case, there are still quite a lot of people who are very focused on optimizing, driving down unit costs, trying to get their application to run, to get basically superior performance out of a static application. Instead of thinking about how do I keep the dynamism that I had in the early days of the project for future innovation. So like the classic thing, and I'll parody a little bit, but like, um, you know, your founders, you'd like started out on public cloud, totally no infrastructure cost at all on some crappy language like PHP, uh, which everyone hates. Everyone hates. Watch out, watch out. Except... (laughs) Except the vast majority of successful <laughs> projects, you know, during a certain time period, maybe that number is starting to go down. But it was a huge amount of time when more things got started on PHP than other languages. Why? Because PHP has great syntax? No, but because its startup costs are the lowest and the speed of iteration is the fastest. If you want to build a new language to compete with PHP, study those two factors and build the whole dynamic runtime for speed of iteration. So then, you know, someone comes in and said, okay, now, we've, now we're running, we're paying these huge bills to our cloud provider. It would be way more efficient if we compiled, we rewrote this application and compiled it down to C++, got it down to assembly, and, you know, ran a static binary. And the problem with that argument is it's totally true. The same application written, of, you know, a compiled language, and I, let's not get into runtime performance and just in time. I mean, like, sure. okay, look, <laughs> certainly in the cloud, you would be, it would be faster to compile down to machine code. But... The problem with that 
is whatever savings you get in operating costs, you more than give up in the expense to like in this in the slowdown you get for iteration speed. Because to to make a the tiniest change to a giant you know monolithic C plus plus binary, uh, it's just a lot more complicated. There's a lot more moving parts. It's a lot easier to screw stuff up. You have much. I mean, there's a hundred reasons why that's not that's not as good. And if you look at a company like Facebook, they're they're now starting to develop that technology to compile C, you know PHP down to mm-hmm. to C plus plus and to get the benefits of both. Like, but Facebook's like a hundred billion dollar company now. So like <laughs> now they can afford that kind of crazy stuff. In the meantime, like until you're that side, just do not mess around. Focus on giving your engineers, your developers, your designers the ability to run experiments quickly and build your infrastructure around that. Uh, I think that's so much more important than unit costs. Uh, I, I think you should you, you focus whatever efficiency uh, energy you have on that problem rather than on uh, making your site more static to improve performance. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Um, so <clears throat> that kind of leads into another um, Another point that you made, um, you know, in the State of the Union, and you talked about the the startup way, um, you know, a variation of the Toyota way. I'm talking about long term thinking, and you know, kind of addressing that from the start, and you know, kind of in the technical world, uh, a lot of people are going to relate that to technical debt. Yeah. Um, how do you do? You, do you see those being equal or different, or or how do you discern between the two? Yeah, I have a very odd. People look at me funny when we start talking about technical debt because I have a very unusual view about technical debt. Oh, but, here's, but here's the great thing about technical debt. Here's the thing that I think is unappreciated about it. Unlike financial debt, some technical debts never come due. It's like imagine you could borrow money from a bank and then sometimes the bank would go out of business before you had to repay the loan. You'd be like, sweet, <laughs> what a great deal. Of course I'm going to borrow. Like, getting, like, what a great deal. Okay, when does technical debt not come due? When the feature that it is being designed to build is not useful to customers and you throw it away, which actually, I mean, any engineer who's being honest will admit that in their career, that kind of crazy thing has happened to them many, many times. Now, there are two dysfunctions that prevent us from taking advantage of that benefit. The first is sometimes we can't admit that we built the wrong thing. So we pretend that our feature was a good idea because it was technically complicated. Customers must love it, right? As if... Customers are like, oh, that thing's technically complicated. Of course I love it. No, <laughs> customers like what serves their needs. So if it doesn't serve their needs and we're honest about it, if we're rigorous about testing, you know, if we're using metrics, then we can figure out, wait a minute, we built this highly scalable thing or we built this thing that – I mean I can't tell you how many highly scalable architectures I've built in my career where they would have been highly scalable if any customers had used the product, but we never had any scalability <laughs> problems. So no break. They're like, ooh, I'm a great engineer. I'm like, no, hard to right? Okay. Got to stop that. But, or the second dysfunction is even though we know the feature adds no benefit, we don't have the courage to take it out of the code base. Right? And that's you got to be willing to admit that it was a waste of time to have invested in it. If you need it back, you know, it's in your source repository. You can always go revert it if you ever need it back. But you're not going to need it back. It's not serving any value. Get rid of it. And get rid of all the extra architectural compromises you introduced, all the extra indirections, all the extra interfaces that made your code more general purpose to co- accommodate this use case. It doesn't like, rip all that out and go back. If you're willing, to, if you have that double of discipline, some of your technical debts don't come due. So it's awesome. So I say, and I've written about this, embrace technical debt. Now, some people hear that and they're like, oh, no, once managers hear that, they're going to go crazy with technical debt. It's like, hold on, hold on. The question is, what do we want to use the technical debt for? So, like, if I borrow money 
I still have a choice of what do I want to use the money for. So if I borrow technical capability by incurring technical debt, I could use that technical debt for more features. I think when people hear about the manager dysfunction of technical debt, that's what they have in mind. Like, oh, uh, you know, skip edge cases, don't have test coverage, like be sloppy, and then we'll get more features. But that's a mistake. So if you're in a kind of a corporate environment where people are pressuring you to do that, you got to stand up and say, no, that's not what we should use the debt for. We should use the technical debt to do things that improve our speed of iteration. See my theme here? If we take that technical debt and invest in continuous deployment, invest in unit test coverage, invest in better tools, better uh, compilers. Like my favorite is we invest in cloud testing. So people insist on running their unit test suite locally in like in a like not, maybe not even in a hosted data center sometimes in their office data center which is even worse sure. like no run the tests in parallel on a million machines in the cloud so that your tests compile in 5 seconds right so like you, you know the uh, the one slowest test is the total speed of te- like make those investments with your technical debt and here's why those investments pay off forever features have a life they live and die so it's it's a good trade to take technical debt Build, invest in your tools, infrastructure, and speed of iteration because then if you do, if the feature is successful and customers want it and you keep investing in it, then you'll, you'll automatically have more of an incentive and more of a capability to do the refactoring necessary to, to pay that technical debt down. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, it was indeed a very different view of technical debt. <laughs> uh, but I, I like it. I, I see where you're going with it. Um, very valid points. Uh, so, is there a a close similarity between agile mythologies and development practices, and what Lean is doing for businesses? It seems like you can use some of the terms interchangeably. Um, what are you? Is, is was that part of the uh, uh, what's the word uh, motivation or part of the? Um, oh yeah. Yeah, so where it was born from? <laughs> well, you know, these things are complicated. But, but I, listen, I was an agile software zealot before I ever, you know, heard about Lean. Ah, uh, and before, okay. you know, and, and when I first started talking about Lean Startup, you know, I was thinking about agile software development and something called customer development, Steve Blank's uh, theory of iterative market development and, and uh, basically thinking about, like, if agile is the engineering function done iteratively, customer mm-hmm. development is the marketing function done iteratively. So I was like, oh, there's gotcha. really interesting analogs. Let's try to put these things together. Now, um, what I have learned since then is that every function, every discipline in, in the modern company has its own iterative methodology. There's traditional lean manufacturing. Think about design thinking, DevOps. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about um, you know, the kind of iterative testing that we want to do in, uh, in QA. Like, think about people who do... Um, like a more of an experimental approach to HR or supply chain. I mean, you name it, someone's got a methodology to do that thing more iteratively. My recollection, my realization in developing the startup was, wait a minute, even if every silo in a business is iterative, if the work flows from silo to silo in a linear fashion, we still haven't built a company-wide feedback loop of learning and discovery. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't talk about Lean Startup as X plus Y anymore. What I talk about, you know, to me what it is, is a company-wide understanding of the importance of learning and uh, iteration and experimentation. So uh, sometimes people say, well, hold on, isn't that just Lean Startup is just my thing applied to the other parts of the business? And I always say that's so true. Well said. 
Good point. You're right. I'm sure you're. I, I'm sure you're right. But listen, don't go lording it over the other groups because they might be offended, right? So you let you know, like, don't go blabbing about it. But yeah, between us, of course, it's just, you know, whatever. Like, pick your favorite thing and rebrand it. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't take that criticism as a criticism. I think it as, uh, as a compliment that so many different groups, from accounting to marketing to finance to uh, engineering operations, manufacturing. Like, think about all those different groups can claim lean startup as their own, and can uh, uh, use its terminology. So it's like a common vocabulary, uh, like a peace treaty among the warring factions. So let's all come together and do this right. Awesome. Um, that was actually one of my other questions. Um, you know, you actually had quite a few um, you know enterprises that you know have kind of gravitated towards the lean mythologies, and um, you know I've even heard of some enterprises saying that they have you know a lean division. You know, and it's like an area of the, of the department that they said, hey we want you to do this project and we want you to apply these mythologies to it. Um, and I kind of begged the question for me, you know, is like, you know, is, is lean an all in type deal? Um, but you seem to kind of answer the question said, well, you know, it can be to some people, but you know, um, you know, you kind of pick and choose where it goes. Well, you have um, to start somewhere, even if, I mean, I mm-hmm. listen, I think that, that lean can, it, it is a world changing idea. I think it can be used to totally transform existing companies. And I think it creates a new template for the kinds of companies that, startups want to become. So I'm all in about I think it's great. But the way you accomplish all in transformation is not by putting up a poster on the wall that says, hey everybody, t- starting tomorrow, February first, 2014, everyone, we are lean. Okay? So on January 31st, <laughs> we weren't lean. And now February 1st, we are lean. Okay, that's the new like that doesn't accomplish anything. You have to pilot the change. You have to prove that it works. You have to try it in one function and then another or with one product, one product line, and slowly build up the momentum of people who understand it. Uh, and so the companies that I've worked with that have had the most success in this transformation have had a really concerted effort top-down to say from an executive level, this is our vision, this is where we're headed. And also bottoms-up, they've had individual entrepreneurs who've been willing to take a chance to apply these methodologies uh, to a specific project. Excellent. So kind of a random question, but what's the, what is the most off-the-wall use of lean that you've come across off the wall i mean i tell you i've been some nutty places okay like <laughs> i'm I, i've been with teams that are doing deep sea underwater drilling um like super high tech like futuristic healthcare uh devices i've done been with ngos who are doing work at the base of the pyramid with some of the world's poorest people um and and i've spent time in governments where people are applying these ideas to some of the most bureaucratic and like frankly ridiculous organizations you will ever meet. Uh, so it's really hard to pick one out as like, Oh, that's, you know, like that's pretty crazy. But, um, I'll tell you a funny story that, that, that someone told me just because healthcare.gov has been in the news a lot lately. What, what are you talking about? Yeah, everyone knows healthcare.gov. <laughs> but what most people don't know, what most people do not know, is that the healthcare.gov that failed to launch on October 1st, 2013, that was not the original healthcare.gov. That was healthcare.gov 2.0. You might ask, what was the first healthcare.gov? <laughs> what was healthcare.gov 1.0? No one's ever heard of it. The reason no one's ever heard of it is because it was an incredible success. See, in America, in our political culture, we only talk about things that are massive failures. <laughs> so uh, yeah, when the healthcare law was first signed, 
there was a mandate in it that the government set up a website to uh, – it wasn't to purchase insurance. It was simply to allow individual people to learn what insurance was available in their local market to kind of document what was going on. It was a massive project. Uh, and because it was on a short timeline, instead of having it just be done the usual contracting way, they gave the project to the person who was then the CTO of HHS, uh, a guy named Todd Park, who subsequently mm-hmm. went on to become even more famous. Uh, and he built it absolute from the textbook lean startup style. I mean, they had a tiny budget, small team. I think they had five people on a team, 90 days to that first MVP, and then like monthly iterations afterwards. They, you know, the initial version, they had to cut a lot of scope because it was just too much to get done in the amount of time. Like, they really did it. It was cheap, efficient, very fast, and they built in customer feedback, feedback from the citizens of the United States into every stage. And, and wow. I was asking someone in the government about it recently who said, uh, you know, uh, they didn't have time. They couldn't afford to do a big RFP with a you know, $100 million budget and whatever. So they did it this way. But for the real, the real healthcare.gov, they did have time. So I was like, <laughs> what? It's like they didn't have time and budget to build the Titanic. So they built something that worked. It's like, uh, excuse me, does that actually make sense to anybody? Like, why would you do that? Like, why is it that we think the bigger, more expensive, less likely to succeed disaster methodology, namely waterfall, like, is what you use for serious projects. But the lightweight, <laughs> inexpensive, scientifically sound way to get, like, that, oh, that's only for trivial. It's just like, well, people, you had an example right there in the department of HHS of the right thing to do, and all those people got sidelined when it came time to do the big adult grown-up thing. And if that's not a metaphor... <laughs> For the dysfunctions in modern IT, I really don't know what is. Oh man, incredible, <laughs> incredible! Uh, I, I love it. Um, you know, there's uh, there, there's pockets of developers that you know I've, I've spoke with that my career, and it's been interesting um, because oftentimes I'll hear, you know, we're we're a waterfall shop um, with a touch of agile, um, <laughs> and you know, and then, uh, you know, we're, like, we're a restaurant okay. with a touch of poison. That's a really great <laughs> slogan to put on your, on your door. Only a little bit of poison. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> you know, I kind of take it, you know, with a grain of salt, and I'm like, okay, well, let's let's talk about what you're actually doing and kind of go with it. But um, yeah, I thought it was in- I thought it was interesting. You know, a, a big project that had lots of time, um, you know, ends up being the the one that kind of stumbles. So that's great, 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 great. Yeah, great story. it's crazy. Oh, listen, people should. Uh, I know we have a lot of people on UStream who had some technical difficulties, but we are open, and, and uh, you can ask questions in the test, text box. I just want to make sure people know that because uh, I don't know if we got a chance to say that at the beginning. Uh, yeah, I think I skipped over that because we kind of got got rushed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> Usually, people are, are are pounding down our doors with questions. But hey, listen, I, I'm having a great time. So, if people don't want to ask questions, no problems. We just keep going. This has been really fun. Uh, okay, cool. So, um, I think this you know kind of segues easily into like this. Uh, you know, my next question here is, you know, we kind of talked about you know the, the enterprises and lean divisions and you know whatnot and. Um, you know, one of the one of the misconceptions I had whenever I you know, I first started you know reading and learning about lean um, was it's it's most appropriate or only appropriate for you know greenfield deployments, yep. um, and um, can you talk a little bit about what a company would do that you know they have an established product or products they have you know analytics already in place they already have customers um, how did they start you know kind of making the transformation. Um, you know, without being disruptive to their current business. 
Yeah, that last caveat is the most important thing. People think the way you get innovation to happen in your company is to create a team, make them special, and protect them from the parent company. Okay, that's like the naive view. Uh, you know, like uh, people always talk to me about uh, my company. Like, I get this, I get people come up to me after talks to tell me about my company. We have a head of innovation. He wears red pants. He drives. He rides around on a scooter. Uh, what his staff sits on beanbag chairs. <laughs> but what does he do? Uh, they are always like, what does that person? Do? Like as if I'm going to be able to explain to them. Like that person has no deliverables, accountable for nothing, and they and they speak in like. <laughs> buzzword jargon, you know, big thoughts. And they're always putting out like white papers about the future of our company, but they don't do anything. It's like, why is, why do they wear red pants? What is the point of that? This is my <laughs> fault. Like I told everybody to wear red pants. Okay. That is not innovation. That is bullshit. Okay. Let's just admit it. That is ridiculous. <laughs> the way you innovate is you have to embed entrepreneurs within your company, but still give them freedom to operate. And the way you give them freedom to operate is you have to protect the middle managers from the startup is exactly the opposite of what people think. People think, oh, keep it a secret, make it a skunk works. You know, middle managers are like ninja assassins. They will find you and kill you. Okay. You cannot keep <laughs> secrets from middle managers. It, you can do it once, maybe. Like if you think about like the great IBM PC uh, skunk works project in Boca Raton, like there you occasionally hear about these great skunk works projects that delivered something amazing. But notice how they only ever delivered it amazing one time. You never hear about the IBM PC 2.0 because as soon as you reveal to the middle managers that there are secrets in your company, they will find you and kill you. Just they turn everybody into super paranoid. That's not how you do it. You have to figure out how do we create uh, uh, a transparent bubble around the startup where we say, look, it's high accountability, not low accountability. Uh, it's going to be in public, not in secret. And the specific metrics we're going to use are what we call innovation accounting, which we can talk about if anyone on the call is interested. But like, you have to use leading indicators, not trailing indicators, to judge success. So if you're judging a startup by ROI, you just give up now. Just shoot it in the head now. Just give it up. Because by definition, uh, the kinds of projects, the kind of risky projects that are going to provide future growth, by your conventional economic analysis, will show up as low ROI. That's just We can get into that, into the economics of that if people are interested, but it's not, it's not going to work. So once you set that up, then you force people to judge the startup on terms that make sense to it, on things like customer delight, per customer metrics, and, and the growth of validated learning rather than the growth of gross revenue. And, uh, and the last tip I'll give is a lot of companies have what I call entitlement funding, where there's like a list. It's usually like an Excel spreadsheet somewhere of approved projects that are funded for this year. And then when mm -hmm. we go to fund next mm -hmm. year, like the assumption is all those projects will still be on the list next year. And everyone just has to debate what kind of an increase should they get in their funding. That's like how the federal government does it, right? It's like if we have a department, our assumption is we're going to fund it next year just like we did last year. And that's not – there's nothing wrong with that for like regular departments, regular running – like the, the core parts of running the business. But for innovation-style projects, I strongly recommend – you don't use entitlement funding. You use metered funding, fixed funding. You just say, look, team of five, here's a million dollars. It is your money. Spend it on whatever you want, personnel, equipment, going to Tahiti. It is your money. No matter how bad our current quarter is, I promise I will not come back and take 10% back. It's like a VC, okay? For all the criticisms people have of VCs, my friends on Sand Hill Road, 
They got all kinds of problems, but one thing they never do is say, here's your check, 10 million bucks, cash it, put it in the bank. Oh, can I have a million dollars back? The money was wired right, from one account right. to the other, and it's your money. Okay, you do that. But here's the flip side of VC-style funding. If you run out of money, God help you if you haven't learned something of value to justify the next funding, right? It's like, oh, no, no, no. You know, like you go back to Santo Rodeo, you're like, listen, uh, we totally wasted your money on our trip to the Bahamas, but now we're enlightened. And we, it's like, you are so doomed, right? So like that is the deal you want to make with your innovator. It's, it's a high form of accountability, and it's a form of accountability that everyone in the organization can respect because it's like, well, this person isn't just telling a funny story and getting unlimited resources and letting the boss, you know, let them wear whatever kind of pants they want. Like it's fundamentally about creating something new. Wow. Okay, excellent. So um, I'll admit I'm not an expert on innovation accounting. Um, <laughs> Could you, could you dive into that a little bit more? Sure, like I, sure. I, I, you know, I'm always hesitant to, to dive into it unless people ask because, you know, it's accounting. Okay, accounting is not very interesting. Woo, it's, accounting. It's, you know, exactly. No one's like, yes, accounting. Finally, <laughs> we're going to talk about accounting. This is about, okay, so I, I understand. But it is fundamental to the success of innovation, both in established companies but also in startups. Every entrepreneur has somebody that holds them accountable. Why? Because entrepreneurs have a very bad habit of spending other people's money. And it doesn't really matter if it's your spouse's money, you know, like your joint life savings. It doesn't matter if it's the CFO's money, and it doesn't matter if it's a VC's money. Like somebody gives you money, and then someone comes back later and says, hey, uh, what, uh, whatever happened to that money I gave you? And, and here's the problem. When we get money, we have a tendency as entrepreneurs to exaggerate what is going to happen. With the money. Never. never. Let's just admit it. We're a little bit optimistic. (laughs) And because we want the money, it's like, listen, if you give me this money, oh, I promise you, you, like, all these great things are going to happen. And sometimes those things don't happen, right? Like, not because we're stupid, not because we're incompetent, but because reality was more complicated than we thought. It's hard to predict the future. You know, what's that that great saying? It's it's very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. So... (laughs) Yeah, like sometimes things don't go the way we thought. So then we're like, uh, we're kind of don't know how to ask for more money while and make more projections when the last things didn't come through. Our credibility is shot and we're, we have trouble. So innovation accounting says uh, let's use a different system of measurement than people are used to in order to hold entrepreneurs accountable to the right things, the things that are actually the leading indicators of the trailing indicators that everybody cares about, like growth revenue, margin, ROI. ROI is the ultimate trailing indicator. When you look back on five years of investment, you could say, what was my return? What was my investment? That's easy. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to have a hockey stick shaped growth curve, then during the flat part of the hockey stick, by definition, my ROI is going to be negative because I'm investing in anticipation of the hockey stick, but I, my returns are flat. Now, how do I know if I'm going to be flat forever or I'm about to turn up the hockey stick? That's really what innovation accounting uh, is about. So think, you know, my favorite example is think about Facebook. When Facebook was just on the Harvard campus, you know, or just on two or three college campuses, they raised a bunch of money in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And if you look at their gross numbers, what we call the vanity metrics, they weren't very high. I mean, they had a few thousand college students using their product. Is Is that remarkable? Not at all. But what is remarkable? Well, we have what we call the value hypothesis and the growth hypothesis. The value hypothesis is how do we know people found the product valuable? Well, 
on a per customer basis, 50% of Facebook customers were logging in every day. Okay, that's a really big deal. Uh, and on the growth side, when they would enter a new campus, they would go from zero to almost complete saturation of the population in something like two weeks. Wow, incredible. So the leading indicators were really strong. It's just they didn't have the trailing indicators yet. And the investors who made the most money on Facebook were willing to invest on the basis of those leading indicators. And that's innovation accounting in a nutshell. Hmm, excellent. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, <laughs> vanity metrics. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I love that one. Um, just because a lot of people are excited about something doesn't mean it's interesting. Um, what What do you do if – if you are building something and you believe it is interesting and then life happens and you find out it's actually not that interesting at all, um, my guess is you're going to tell me iterate and pivot. But yes. <laughs> you, you, you already know. Yeah. But it's like, look, what's the alternative? Seriously. Like people, people – Say, oh, pivot, it's a buzzword, and, and everyone wants to pivot. People don't, you know, they don't persevere enough and they give up too soon, and pivot's bad. But, like, seriously, what, first of all, what is a pivot? A pivot is a change in strategy without a change in vision. So, if you lack perseverance, you cannot pivot by definition. You have to be in service of the vision. It's like I'm trying to drive from LA to San Francisco, and there's a detour. Like in order to, to plan a new route to San Francisco, I have to remember my goal is to get to San Francisco. I can't be like, well, I made it to Bakersfield. So <laughs> I'll give – I was like, what? like that doesn't make any sense. So I, I think that's stupid. Like all, all this is is to say if your strategy is not working, find one that does work. Now, what if you don't know if your strategy is working or not? Well, then you have to persevere in order to discover if it's working or not. And the whole point of Lean Startup is simply to discover the facts about whether the strategy is working sooner rather than later. But come on. If I present to you conclusive evidence that you have the wrong strategy, seriously, you think you should persevere and keep doing it? It's like you're banging your head against the wall and the wall is doing just fine. You really want to keep doing it? Like it doesn't make sense. But people, because we have such a mythology that somehow the most successful founders willed their company into existence through their perseverance and determination, it can feel like uh, all this talk about pivoting is some kind of capitulation. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's just something we have to get over as, in our culture to say, look, the energy and creativity and vision that founders bring to their companies is too precious a commodity to waste on banging your head against the wall. It's ridiculous. So okay, so on the on the strategy side, this is interesting um, because uh, I can't I can't remember the exact um, the exact person who wrote this article, but it was an article that I, it was loosely titled um, "Culture Eat Strategy for Breakfast." Yep. Um, so where does culture fit in with Lean? Yeah. Well, you mentioned the, the the diagram called the Startup Way, which is how I remember. It's, it's my heuristic for just making sure that I remembered when I'm doing organizational change or creating a new organization from scratch, I have to think in the right order. Accountability, process, culture, people in that order. Simple, think about the, the pyramid diagram. Accountability, mm -hmm. process, culture, people in that order. When, when I get brought in as a consultant to help companies be more innovative, quite often what the people who bring me in want is to fire some people or hire some fancy new people. Or maybe they're like, can we get a new culture? Can you help us get a new culture? And what they have in mind is what kind of posters should we put up on the wall? 
I hear Facebook has awesome posters that say move fast and break things. Like if I put those posters <laughs> up on my wall, would I do anything? It's like I'm always the one to be like, listen, I got bad news for you. Posters ain't going to do nothing, right? That culture is the artifact of the process decisions you've made in the past. So you, you can't just change culture. You have to change the systems that give rise to culture. So when people say culture eats strategy for breakfast, they are 100% right. If you have a bad culture, you're in big trouble. But that still doesn't help. I'll tell you what to do about it. It's like, well, okay, do I ha- in order to adopt a new strategy, do I have to adopt a new culture? Yes. But that, like, okay, okay, great. How do I do it? Do I just tell people to have a new culture? It's like everyone, like, everyone be lean starting February 1st. Like that doesn't work. The way we incubate a new culture is by changing the accountability and process systems around people. And I have been astounded. I mean truly flabbergasted when I have seen people become amazing innovators and cultures change fast when you just give people the opportunity to, to do things in a different way. Uh, I tell a few stories in the book. I mean, I've seen now this this play out over and over and over again. You take a few people out of a company that if you looked at their resumes, you'd say these are the most boring corporate people, never innovated in their life, you know, gatekeepers, bad behavior, bureaucrats, <laughs> and give them the opportunity to form a team, a cross-functional, independent team, a startup, and go after something they care about. Like I've seen amazing transformation happen. And the most famous such transformation, I think, is one we all should take inspiration from, is the creation of the Numi joint venture between GM and Toyota. This is, this is from years ago. But, but mm-hmm. uh, John Shook, who actually led that transformation, spoke at the conference this year. And, you know, I had heard this story. For those who don't know the story, uh, this is uh, in, the, in the 80s, I think, when, when Japan was going to take over the world and America was quite afraid of the Japanese management system and all that stuff. Toyota agreed to enter into a joint venture with General Motors in America. They said, we will take over your worst performing plant with the worst, worst employees, worst quality ratings, worst union relations, worst everything. And we will implement the Toyota production system there. And we will do that for you as a joint venture. And they took over this plant right here in Fremont, California, and they turned it around. It went from worst uh, plant in North America to top performing plant in North America, best quality, incredible. I mean, it was incredible with the same workforce, the same physical plant. I mean, the same labor contracts, the same union reps, mm-hmm. same everything. Completely different culture. And the part of the story that I didn't know before hearing John tell the story in uh, at the conference, guess how long that transformation took? It took one year. Wow. I thought it was like over 10 wow. years they slowly trained. The, no, in one year they completely and totally changed the culture of that place and the outcomes that they were getting. Isn't that amazing? Very. What poster did they put up? Right, exactly. That's what people <laughs> want to know. It's like, and, and it's funny because you know people look at that story and they study Toyota and they study their favorite company like Facebook or Apple or whoever your favorite company is and they're like, what, what, you know, how do I make my company just like them? And they look at the superficial details. You know, if you remember the, the 80s and 90s manufacturing wars, you know, in Japan versus America, it was all about robots. American mm-hmm. companies were obsessed with robots because Japanese companies use a lot of automation. And, you know, they're like, ah, if we just put – and I just imagine these American executives going to the Numi plant, going to Toyota and saying, what's your secret? And if you look at the Toyota production system, it's all about what? Respect for people. The elimination of waste, um, 
you know, thinking in a systems way to harness the creativity of every person that works in your organization. Uh, I, I just have this image in my mind. You imagine these big American executives come out and they're like, what's the secret? And they're like, uh, there's respect for people. And the Americans are like, yeah, 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 cut the Zen crap. How do I make more money? And they take them to the factory, and there's these, you know, those factories at that time were really advanced, very beautiful, clean factories with all this on. And, and you could just see the Americans being like, ah, I got it. Robots. <laughs> <laughs> like, forget the system, forget the respect for people. It's all about robots. Come back. And the American companies spent like billions on robots with almost no benefit from a productivity gain. I mean, it's just crazy because. You can't see those intangible factors, but they are very important. How does the senior executives behave? What incentives do they create for their employees? And what is the accountability system in the company? If you hold your people accountable for high quality, but also for raising the attention of quality defects to their manager instead of hiding them, in Toyota they have a great saying, no problem is a big problem. So if someone's running a modern factory and they're like, everything's under control, everything's within, you know, everything's going great, they're lying to you. The modern <laughs> world is way too complicated for that to ever be the accurate standard. When someone puts up, like, companies put out quarterly reports that show smooth, quarter over quarter, nice, linear, it's like, they are lying to you. You're forcing them to massage the numbers because like, life is chaotic and crazy and difficult. And so let's admit that, let's acknowledge that, let's get serious about it. And then let's figure out how do we manage in the face of that uncertainty instead of pretending it doesn't exist. And those intangible factors drive a lot of company performance, in my opinion. Awesome. Okay, I think we got time for uh, for one more question. Uh, awesome. So, gonna gonna go out to uh, actually to left field here um, and just throw this one at you, just because I'm curious about your opinion on this. Sure. Um, so, what um, what are your thoughts around? Um, the latest ruling around net neutrality and what impact it's going to have um, on startups and potentially um, what people are doing with Lean. Well, thank you for that. Uh, this is such an important topic. And it's a nuanced topic. I think people get, people get ideological about things like this, and I understand why. Um, I think the, the community that has been evangelizing for net neutrality has done a tremendous service. Uh, made it into a litmus test for candidates, really made it something that you either support or, you know, it's like you're the for it or against it. And, and you know, when you see the world in black and white, like we all got to be for it. If you look at, I, I love Fred Wilson had a post recently about what the world would look like, uh, venture pitches would look like in a world of no net neutrality. It's like we need, for the future of our civilization, we, if we really want to harness all this creativity and, and entrepreneurial energy, it's critical that new entrants, startups, be able to compete on a first-class footing with incumbents. So tiered pricing, tiered data delivery, all that stuff is wrong. And uh, the current decision, you know, the court decision invalidated the FCC decision for net neutrality. Like, first of all, net neutrality should have been a congressional action. You know, in an ideal world with a functioning Congress, we would have had the Congress weigh in and say, as a matter of public policy, this is the right thing to do. Failing that, I think it is appropriate for the FCC to act. But... My understanding is the FCC took the route of, of not classifying Internet providers as telecom providers and therefore going through this kind of Byzantine complicated thing. It seems to me from the outside, and, and that's what the court struck down. They said if you're not going to classify them mm -hmm. as telecom providers and these provisions don't apply. So, okay, FCC, <laughs> just, get, just bite the then bullet. what is it? <laughs> telecom these are common carriers, and that's what it is. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are complexities that I don't understand, and so, like, 
when I look at this, and I'm not super engaged in the debate day to day, you know, this is something I think is important, but I, I have every confidence this is going to get sorted out. Because fundamentally, there are massive amounts of money to be made by sorting it out, right? Think about all the VCs and tech companies who are behind net neutrality. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, like the, the, the public policies that, that are difficult to resolve are the ones where powerful interests are up against the poor and the disenfranchised. When it's one set of very, very powerful people against another, you know, <laughs> it's going to work itself out. We're going to be okay. I, I think we're going to get through this. I, I do think we should continue to, to advocate for it. I think it's an important policy. And I think the FCT has a relatively clear way to fix what the court struck down. But barring that, you know, I think we should lobby for congressional action. And look, listen, and if, and if the government won't act and telecom providers do start to behave in discriminatory ways, then we as consumers and entrepreneurs have to figure out uh, how do we route around that damage and take care of it? But but as a matter of public policy, I think it would be, I think it's important. And then look, after we win that argument, after we win that fight, we have to get serious about how who's going to provide the financing capital to invest in next gen broadband. Mm-hmm. So so I think part of the reason the telecom industry is eager to do away with net neutrality is they're worried about their profitability in a world where they're going to have to invest in gigabit or ten gigabit you know, fiber and wireless to every human being in the country. Like, I, that is a massive capital outlet that needs to come from somewhere. So I happen to think it's gonna, we're going to be fine because tiered data pricing, data discriminate, I don't even think that's a very good way to profitability because that's like the, the um, it's like killing the golden goose. It's stupid. But, okay, you know, if that's what they believe, then we have to figure out how do we ameliorate that concern or how do we disrupt those players and put better ones in place. That would be fine with me. Although I like to point out that even Google, now that they're in the telecom business, are starting to lobby on net neutrality. So I mean, we have to really be holding them to say, "Wait a minute, you know, if 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 you're a provider, you gotta these have these have to be principles that we think ultimately grow the total pie." So anyway, that's my two cents. Awesome, appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. So, uh, are we wrapping up here? Listen, well, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you, Wayne, for doing this. These were amazing questions, and I had a really good time. And thank you, everybody who tuned in. Sorry for our technical difficulties. Uh, those that made it through, uh, we're very grateful. 